Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, November 11th, 2022 edition of On Iowa Politics. Thank you to all our veterans who have served and who are listening. On this podcast, we'll take a deep dive into Tuesday's election results, what happened in and what it means for Iowa. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. With me today are Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Aaron. Lead Bureau Chief Caleb McCullough is here. Good morning, Caleb. Good morning, Aaron. We have Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Aaron. Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal is here. Hello, Jared. Aaron, if this podcast goes beautifully, I should get all the credit. If it goes not so beautifully, I should not be blamed at all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Those midterm. If it, if it, well, all the wins were because of me and all the losses because we're someone else. And finally, Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. All right. So, um, obviously, Tuesday was a big day. And as we sit here Friday morning, some of the unofficial counting is still not yet completed. We almost made it yesterday and had everybody in after a couple of uh, partial recounts in a couple of counties. And some tweaks and some um, Lynn County results. Uh, we thought we were there. And then Sarah Watson's very own Scott County pulled the rug out from underneath us. And we got to have one more partial recount over there, uh, which will probably happen early this week since state offices are closed um, uh, today uh, as we sit here on Friday on Veterans Day. But we have an idea of what happened largely. There's only local races now that hang in the balance with those results. Um, obviously, it was a successful election for Iowa Republicans. But let's uh, um, let's let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, Caleb, let me start with you. Um, you covered the Iowa Senate, uh, the U.S. Senate race here in Iowa throughout the campaign. Um, some of the polling especially one in particular Iowa poll a couple weeks out from the election showed that maybe that race was fairly close. Uh, in the end, it looks like the, those remaining undecided voters almost all broke for Chuck Grassley because at the end of the day, he still won by double digits. Yeah, it was, uh, it, I, I would say it was not surprising, um, but I also, I mean, I, I didn't really have a great sense of where it was going to land. I, I don't think I would have been that surprised if it was um, in the single digits either. I mean, we knew this was going to be a, a close election, but also um, we knew that it was more likely than not going to be going to go to Grassley. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that late, um, kind of late deciding, independent, uh, low propensity voters kind of probably had a big uh, impact um, and you know Iowa has and the other races um, kind of dispel this uh, this tradition but Iowa does have a big tradition of electing independence uh, voters really uh, respect that and I think people um, you know took that into account uh, but yeah I mean I, th- I think as far as the statewide races go um, it was it was an interesting one and I mean um, Mike Franken certainly ran a um, a good campaign and, you know, did a lot to take a lot of the margin off of Grassley that he could have had. Um, so it was, it was an interesting, interesting race. Yeah. Uh, Todd, did that ultimately surprise you? <clears throat> Pardon me that the, the, the final margin there, did that, what was your reaction to 
the Grassley Franken outcome? No, I don't. I don't think I was all that surprised. Uh, I was always pretty skeptical of the of the first, you know, Iowa poll that showed it a three point race. I, I, it, it didn't, you know, based on what we were seeing, it didn't make a ton of sense. The second poll made more sense with him up eleven or twelve or whatever it was. I mean, it's, you know, the combination of Grassley being sort of this political icon you know, in Iowa and also the, you know, obviously the, the headwinds that Democrats face in a midterm and, and, you know, and, and also the fact that, you know, the national democratic party wasn't very interested in any of the democratic congressional races, including the Senate race. So they were short of resources and momentum was on the other side. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's, you know, it isn't surprising that Grassley won fairly easily. Yeah. Um, and then the other one at the top of the ticket was the governor's race. Oh, I'm sorry. I wanted to say real quick, uh, before we move on from that, um, speaking of those Iowa polls, uh, towards the end of that cycle there, uh, we had Jay, um, Ann Selzer on Iowa press on Iowa PBS this weekend. Um, we recorded that yesterday and, uh, our first question right out of the shoot was about that. You know, what, what, what was her analysis of why those polls look so, different uh, it, it just a few weeks apart and and i thought her answer was interesting and um i'm gonna do the shameful plug thing and not tell you what she said and ask you to watch iowa press this weekend so uh you can it's already up online if you want to see it there or catch us uh, to, uh friday night or, or sunday at noon um then the whole show was interesting too she, we kind of dove into some of the polling she's done on campaigns and issues here this past year um uh, as for the governor's race uh I think even fewer surprises there. Um, that one was just never really close from the start. Um, Kim Reynolds was in a commanding position from the very start of this general election. Uh, Deidre Jajir, um never uh, was really able to get uh, uh, any kind of momentum uh, going as far as enough to, to, to make a serious challenge to Kim Reynolds anyways. I mean, she had her strong core of support and she had a lot of people um, behind her. Uh, but but uh, never at any point was it um, enough that uh, it, it looked like that race was going to be uh, competitive. Todd, can come back to you real quick here. We, we've kind of asked this question throughout the campaign, and I'll ask it one more time now that the, the race is, is over. Um, it, it, was this a missed it, it, it chance for Democrats? Did, it, did they not? do an adequate job getting behind uh, their candidate in this race or, or would it ultimately have mattered? Do you think that Kim Reynolds was just in that strong a position here in Iowa and, and uh, even with a better democratic effort? And I don't mean that from a candidate standpoint. I mean that from a whole holistic standpoint, would it not have mattered anyways? Would she have beat anyone coming at her? Oh, I, I, I think Kim Reynolds came in, in a position of strength and uh, probably would have won anyway. Although, I mean, I think Democrats need to do some soul searching on this one, especially because they sort of, you know, the party and their donors and, 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 you know, folks sort of chose, you know, strategery, I guess, over, <laughs> over like their principles and, you know, what they believe in. And, and, you know, that there, here's this governor that's, 
attacking public schools, which is a, a prime, you know, public school teachers are a prime democratic constituency. She's, you know, trying to ban abortion after six weeks. She's got a poor record on civil rights. All of these things that Democrats hold dear, she's basically, you know, undermined. And yet they decided to kind of give her a free pass, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I think as we saw toward the end of the campaign, when this year got a chance to, to debate Reynolds and had some, a couple of TV ads finally, that she was a pretty, she was a pretty high quality candidate. And had she been able to become better known a lot sooner, I mean, it may have been much closer. I still think Reynolds would win, but I, I, I mean, now, I don't. I don't think not backing Desir was the was the right strategy, win or lose. Because, I mean, when it comes to four years from now, who's going to step forward and want to run for governor against Reynolds if if they know that, you know, unless they're like a, you know, I don't even know who it would be that would be a a formidable com- competitor at this point. But anybody else, they'll just maybe sit on their hands. So why run? Tom, let me ask you, Todd said there that, it, that he thinks Democrats need to do some soul searching. I know you're working on something for the weekend, um, uh, kind of looking at what's next for Iowa Democrats. I, I won't ask you to give up the farm yet, and I know that's still um, in, in progress, but uh, can, is there anything you can tell us about the, the folks you've talked to yet and, and, and kind of how Iowa Democrats are looking forward and trying to pick themselves off the mat here right now? Yeah, so um, I talked to um, a few Democrats yesterday, uh, including a um, uh, uh, candidate um, who uh, ran for a state house seat um, and and was unsuccessful. And um, she talked about uh, the difficulty uh, getting support from um, the state party um, and talking about how um, you know, it, it felt like the, the, the state party um, didn't really spend a lot of, of, of resources um, in, in um, potentially some, some key races in the state because of that lack of um, support from national Democrats. The state party just didn't have a lot of funds, a lot of resources to, to, to spread around. So they had to kind of pick and choose um, and, and, and be targeted with, with, with their investment. Um, and, and, but, you know, she was talking about how, um, because she wasn't able to meet the party's, um, fundraising numbers, um, she was pretty much on her own, um, uh, starting in, in about mid August. But, um, when she was looking at, um, you know, her, her numbers, um, you know, she, um, you know, performed as well, if not maybe, a little bit better than um, the other Democratic candidates on the ballot in her district. And so to her, um, she said, you know, she doesn't necessarily see it as um, an issue, a a candidate issue, but as a a turnout issue Um, and compared the uh, Iowa Democratic Party to the Republican Party of Iowa and said that, you know, look, on the other side, the GOP in Iowa, you know, they act like they're always in a campaign. You know, they're always in campaign mode. You know, there's never kind of a downtime for them. They're always focusing on um, voter engagement, voter outreach, um, 
registration. I mean, there's there's never a downtime for them. Whereas um, they, she contrasted that to this Iowa Democratic Party, um, and she's like, you know, we we really only focus on this and do this, you know, every two years. Um, and and this needs to be a continual process for us. You know, we need to focus on um, building the party. Um, and then she also talked about, and we've, we've heard this, you know, for a number of years now, you know, we've heard this in, in other elections about how Democrats need to do a better job of reaching out to rural Iowans and, and to, to, to rural voters. And so I asked the question, so are, are Democrats just kind of paying lip service to that? And she said, I don't, I don't think necessarily so. I don't think they're paying lip service, but I think that we failed to see, um, kind of any effective, Kind of solutions or steps or implementation um, for, um, you know, again, reaching out to those rural voters. Um, and, and so she was, you know, uh, pretty frustrated and, um, and, and, you know, said going forward, as, as Todd said, you know, she feels that there needs to be a lot of soul searching within um, the Democratic Party. Um, and and um, I also talked to um, Jennifer uh, Confirst, um, the uh, Democratic leader in the Iowa House. Um, and, uh, you know, she was pretty frank about, you know, the fact that um, national Democrats, you know, um, don't see Iowa as, as being competitive anymore, um, kind of see it as a lost cause. Of course, obviously, she doesn't see it that way. And, um, you know, talked about how um, you know, they're, they're already, um, she said she's already talking to candidates, um, and they're already, um, planning on, um, 2024, um, and, uh, said that they are planning on, you know, delving into, to the data to kind of look at, um, you know, where things went wrong and, and, and how they move forward from here. Yeah. To yeah. um to some of those points, I saw more than a few versions of this as I uh, was combing through social media until like 2 a.m. Uh, on Tuesday into Wednesday um, that, you know, if Democrats want to win in Iowa in a meaningful way on certain issues, they have to stand for things and can't just try and be Republican light on, on certain matters. Because if, you know, you're perceived that way by some uh, factions of the party, they might be less inclined to vote for you. And of course it's not going to win over Republicans because they can just vote for the, the Republicans <laughs> instead. And I thought that was an interesting perspective and, and might be speaking to some of these uh, issues as well in terms of turnout and everything. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, um, you know, getting back to the point about um, Democrats needing to do a better job of um, reaching out to, to rural voters and, and, um, um, you know, performing better in, in those rural counties. Um, you know, it, it seems like, um, you know, the, the eminent domain issue with the CO2 pipelines was kind of a, a ripe issue for Democrats really to kind of to, to seize on. Um, and you saw some candidates in some of the races, um, you know, kind of make that a focal issue, but I don't necessarily know that you saw that kind of across the board with with, with the Democratic Party and, and, and with candidates. And, and I think that maybe that was kind of a missed opportunity um, for them, you know, really to um, make some inroads um, with these uh, rural voters in some of these rural areas where they've, you know, steadily been um, losing support over the past election cycles. Yeah. Yeah. I kept expecting to hear more about that 
uh, on the campaign than <clears throat> I did. Um, uh, so, so I'm with you, Tom. I wonder if that was a missed opportunity. You know, the counter that I, to that, I suppose, is that affects a very narrow slice of voters, at least directly, you know, talking about the landowners. But I wonder, you know, if there's more beyond that, if it's not just the landowners that are, are tuned into that issue and, and would be willing to vote for a candidate who was more supportive of landowner rights and less supportive of eminent domain. Um, I, I, I genuinely don't know the answer to that. I'm wondering, but we won't find out, find out at least this cycle because nobody really leaned into that one. Did you, you, you've got pipelines in, uh, and this has come up a little bit in your area, Jerry, did you hear many camp candidates talking about that issue? Um, well, like when he, he came through here a couple different times, um, Ryan Melton talked about it. And, yeah. um, I mentioned too uh, last week, um, granted he didn't run as a Democrat. He ran as a no party candidate. Um, but, uh, there was a candidate in one of the races, Dan wall, who ran as a no party candidate. And his big thing was the pipeline issue. Um, he even said that he's being sued by one of the pipeline uh, companies. And, you know, he only got 25% of the vote, but as a no-name party candidate who basically only had a campaign on, on Facebook and very little money, 25% based off of just one issue that you're essentially running on yeah. speaks to, to something. Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, I... So it, as we uh, kind of expand on the, 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 the red wave here in Iowa here, uh, spend a minute here talking about our congressional races and, and um, uh, including those competitive, um, the most competitive one in central Iowa here. Um, also what we kind of thought could be competitive ones in, in eastern Iowa, um, but also suspected that they were leaning Republican, and that certainly turned out to be the case. Um, uh, Sarah Watson, you covered the new first district with Marionette Miller Meeks um, uh, beating Christina Bohannon. And then um, right next door, Ashley Henson and Liz Mathis. Uh, Ashley Henson beat Liz Mathis by some uh, very similar uh, vote counts. Um, I, I did either of those outcomes surprise you, Sarah? It, it, like I said, that, that that kind of felt like the way it was going. And, and Todd mentioned just the national headwinds that Democrats were up against and, uh, and, and the trends here in Iowa. It, it seems to me like those ones turned out pretty much like we expected. Am, am I close to the mark there? Yeah. Yeah. And especially like, like the Iowa poll um, asked like, what, uh, what uh, party would you prefer to see, um, you know, in that, in that race? And I remember mm -hmm. seeing a couple people on Twitter, just like complaining, well, you know, why did the Des Moines register ask that question instead of asking like candidate versus candidate? And when I went to, when I went out to the polls and like talked with voters about, you know, who did you support for Congress? I mean, a lot of people told me they weren't familiar with Christina Bohannon or Marionette Miller-Meeks. They were voting for the a national message and didn't really know, weren't really super familiar with, uh, with either candidate. They were either interested in, you know, voting in Republicans and were talking about inflation, high prices, or they were talking about, you know, access to abortion and climate change um, and supporting Democrats. So, um, so I, I'm not really surprised. I also think that um, 
just in general. In Scott County, really, um, as the third most populous county in Iowa, um, went pretty Republican. Like every, I was looking at the, according to unofficial results, and we are doing a recount of these absentee ballots, but um, according to the unofficial tallies, Republicans won almost every competitive race in Scott County, even like they swept the three county board seats. They, uh, every single statewide race went to Republicans won in Scott County and, um, and all the competitive legislative races where a Democrat and a Republican were running went to Republicans and, um, uh, every county uh, office except for the county recorder, which is held by a 20 year incumbent Democrat, went to Republicans. So um, I thought that was really unique because Scott County has voted for Democrats for president almost every cycle since 2000, um, as far back as the results go and uh, historic results go and in, in, at least on the Scott County Auditor's website. Um, but so. And this is actually the was the first time that I could see that Tom Miller did not get Scott County. Um, mm-hmm. They voted for Brenna Bird, so um, so I just found that really interesting. You know, S- Democrats didn't do very well in in Scott County, and I guess we'll see. You know, more when these absentee ballot numbers come out. But um, so I think so. Yeah. So it, it's. I think that was definitely interesting is in our area. And so um, Christina Bohannon, especially, you know, didn't get much help from from Scott County when like Rita Hart, Marionette Miller Meeks' previous opponent was from the area. So she had won like Clinton County and Scott County. But um, uh, Christina Bohannon obviously is from Johnson County. Um, but the other thing, I talked to Christina Bohannon the next day and she really echoed the, the that the National Party didn't really help out in these Eastern Iowa congressional districts. And she thought, you know, looking at like the third district where there was money coming in, that one was a lot more competitive. And so she thought that um, there were these ads coming out against Christina Bohannon. And she really thought that if there was a there were national Democrats investing in her campaign for her to be able to put more ads on the airwaves to, to counter that narrative, they, they might've done better. Yeah. Sarah, in my neck of the woods, uh, Woodbury County, which sixth largest County in the state, every single Democrat in a competitive race on the ballot lost, uh, Grassley got 63% of the vote to Franken's 36. Randy Feenstra got uh, 64% of the vote to Ryan Melton's 33. Reynolds got 66% and Desir got 31. And then, uh, Rocky DeWitt, who was running for state Senate District 1, he defeated the incumbent with 55% of the vote to 44%. And Bob Henderson, who previously ran here and lost, he won by getting 57% of the vote to Steve Hansen's 42%. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steve Hansen, between the Iowa House and Iowa Senate, had like uh, 20 plus years worth of experience in the legislator, oh, uh, legislature and had even beaten Henderson before. Um, so now, essentially, uh, J.D. Shulton is the only Democratic legislator left in our uh, newspaper's 17-county uh, coverage area. The uh, the only one. Wow. Uh, yeah, that Jackie Smith one that you mentioned, that's who Rocky DeWitt yep. beat. Do I remember it? Yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a noteworthy um, one. Uh, a couple things I wanted to circle back on real quick that Sarah uh, mentioned. One was the... Um, the fact that Scott County that went to um, Attorney General Tom Miller, 
Um, I had a Republican this week highlight for me that 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 happened. And then on the flip side, um, so Brenna Bird won Scott County, but Tom Miller won Dallas County, um, which kind of shows some of the shifts we're seeing in voter trends right now with suburbs um, trending a little more Democrat these days. And so Tom Miller was able to pick off Dallas County, which is suburb of its suburbs of the western suburbs of Des Moines. Um, whereas Brenna Bird picked up uh, Scott County now, which kind of shows that trend we're seeing. And and we talk a lot about the rural vote in Iowa, but I think just as critical, if not even more so for Iowa Democrats, is the, the losses, and, and we saw it even more so this year, the, the hemorrhaging of votes and voters in these kind of working class or, or kind of mid-sized communities. So Scott County and the Quad Cities is one example. Dubuque is another example of that that's been shifting much more Republican lately. Um, a lot of the communities uh, along the, the Mississippi River there, uh, the so-called Obama-Trump uh, counties continue to uh, trend in, in, in Republicans' directions. The other thing is uh, that you said, uh, Sarah, uh, about the nationalization of those races and, and uh, um, somewhere Ann Selzer is smiling and it's not just because you defended her choice to to pull just the generic ballot. It's because of what you said. And, and, and again, I'll tease to the show again this weekend. We talked a little bit about some of these races and, and she said exactly what you did, Sarah, from your reporting and talking to voters there that for a lot of, and, and she said that showed up in her polling too, that for a lot of voters in these congressional races, it wasn't about the candidate at all. They were voting on which party they wanted to control the House or Senate. And that was that was literally it. Not, nothing else uh, mattered to them. I mean, they have the reasons for that, obviously, but that it wasn't about the candidate at all. It was about the party control. So that's uh, interesting and, and a good job on your reporting there that matches up the, the polling that we've seen. Um, yeah, and Aaron, I, I wonder if like that particular kind of mindset can explain how in some other states uh, surrounding Iowa that are also quite red, like, Nebraska $15 minimum wage one there and uh, legal weed one in uh, Missouri. So I, I do wonder if like people are going in and voting and they're not even really voting for a specific candidate or even like some pet project, how some of that stuff can kind of sneak through when, when other like specific candidates for one party or the other don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and to dovetail off that too, kind of is not directly, but tangentially, it was interesting to me that, um, Speaking of the red wave, um, it it did not happen nationally by any stretch of the imaginations. I mean, Republicans clearly had some successes, and they'll most likely have control of the House uh, when all is said and done. Um, but not to the degree that we thought it, it could possibly happen, and that some people were talking about. But it did very much happen here in Iowa, um, and that's interesting to me. And I wonder if that. Um, gets at uh, uh todd let me come back to you um does that speak to does that say anything to you the, about either the demographics or the trends in iowa that this red wave didn't happen nationally it didn't republicans didn't crush it nationally but they sure did in iowa well i i think yeah demographics is probably part of it i mean we've seen you know white working class voters abandon the democratic party not just in Iowa, but all over. But here it's been pretty pronounced. We're, you know, we're one of the states with the highest 
you know, I think in the top 10, the highest percentage of our population being, you know, white working class. So that's a, that's an obstacle. And I also, you know, we've talked about this already about the structural obstacles that Democrats faced here. And I mean, the, the worse you do, the more red waves hit. I mean, that's just a self-fulfilling prophecy then, because then the national Democrats are not going to, not going to help. And then that, that, makes other donors think, well, if if the Democratic Party doesn't think this is worth it, why should I throw half a million dollars into it? And and so then those structural differences grow. I mean, I don't think the Iowa Democratic Party will be sending a Christmas card to the National Democratic Party this year. I mean, you, you saw that they the National Democratic Party played a pretty big role in, in why the caucuses were screwed up. And then <laughs> now they're going to change the calendar and probably move – Iowa somewhere down the line they they didn't support congressional candidates or senate candidates and in races that you know looked ended up being looking closer than all the you know the the various national forecasts that said they were all solid r uh so yeah i don't i don't think i don't think they'll be sending a fruit basket or a card or a box of chocolate covered cherries i think it'll be you know i don't know that the national democrats will even notice but i i don't know it it's possible. I don't know if this has ever been done before. I mean, Major League Baseball has teams in Canada. Is it possible for the Iowa Democratic Party to, like, you know, franchise and become part of like the Canadian Labor Party or some other <laughs> some other party that might be it's more interested in like supporting their candidates and, and giving them some help during elections? I mean, that's that's something to explore during all of this soul searching. Yeah, between the caucuses and and the kind of bailing on on races here, I'm sure the Iowa Democratic Party looks at the national party kind of like the the arsonist who's screaming at the firemen, "Why can't you put this fire out?" Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, and, then, and then at the same time, um, you know, I saw posts when polls had only been closed for a couple hours saying, you know, Democratic donors need to give more freely to, to state legislative campaigns. And obviously, you know, money is nice to have when you're running elections. But if you're a donor, large or small, and you see these results, are you going to say this is inspiring and makes me want to open up my wallet uh, in the future? Yeah. Well, and, yeah. you know, back in back in the day when Howard Dean was chairman of the Democratic Party, he you know, they, they followed what he called a 50-state strategy. You basically played in every state. You tried to win elections in every state. You built organizations in every state. That kind of fell out fell out of favor when Obama was president. They sort of took their eye off the ball with, with legislative campaigns and some of these other things. And what they basically bought themselves is gerrymandered congressional districts, giving Republicans all sorts of advantages, and Democrats in some places too, but they, they, you know, they, they were thinking, well, the demographics and the population growth in blue states is going to be enough to keep us, you know, above water. And, and now we've seen, at, you know, with Trump and, and other phenomena that that's, that was a bad bet. So maybe they need to start looking at legislatures. And I think the Democrats did a better job this time backing gubernatorial candidates. For instance, they made some gains. Uh, but I think legislatures are still something the national party isn't isn't as focused on as they should be because that's that's who's passing the voting restrictions that's who's drawing the districts I mean that they have a lot of a lot of power and and I think 
I don't know if this is still true. I think Republicans still control the majority of legislat- legislatures. I'm, I'm not sure if that's, you know, how that changed, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's been terrible for Democrats. Let me ask you one quick question. Um, and Todd, I'll ask you this one because it's a little bit too opinion-y for, for the rest of us. Um, <laughs> uh, it, as we, again, kind of in, in the realm of assessing Iowa Democrats moving forward, because one part of the equation is this, is, is quality of candidates. I'll, I'll, I'll say as much as I can just from like not, do I think they would have been a good official? Do I think people should have voted for them? Do I agree with their issues? None of that, just from what we see as political reporters as far as like how candidates interact with uh, people when they're campaigning, um, are they good communicators, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To me, I feel like Iowa Democrats had a pretty solid slate of candidates in this cycle. I think Mike Franken was pretty good uh, on the campaign trail. I, who knows how much the um, the allegations were made against him um, hurt him. It, it's tough to know. And and um, uh, but that aside, I, I, I thought he was a pretty good campaigner. Um, I thought I thought Deidre Desir individually was a very good candidate she had uh, um was able to connect with voters uh when she was out there and talking to people and i thought she was a good public speaker which is very important um those congressional candidates obviously cindy axney's record speaks for itself she's been around and won in a very tough district i thought liz mathis and christina bonhannon were both solid and both had good resumes and 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 were good candidates. I, it, it it didn't seem to me like a candidate problem. Did, what what do you think, Todd? Yeah, I don't I don't think it was. Uh, I mean, we've talked about resources that they didn't have. Yeah. Uh, there's also this just this stubborn situation that we have where there seems to be sort of a disconnect between what you know what policy issues people favor or don't favor, and then which candidates they vote for. Uh, I mean, because on paper, a lot of the stuff the Democrats were talking about, let's not do school vouchers, let's support public schools, let's you know spend money on mental health, let's not ban abortion. Right. All of those things are popular according to polling. And, and so they had a message that should have been popular and yet a lot of people just decided to vote for Republicans anyway. It's almost, it's almost like this has become like, you know, you're, you're, the sports team that you, you know, that you die hard with. It's like, you know, I may think Brian Ferentz has a terrible offensive game plan, but I'm still going to be a Hawkeye fan. And it's like, maybe that's like, well, yeah, I, I think Kim Reynolds has horrible ideas, but yeah, I, I vote Republican because that's who I am and that's who I root for. So I don't know, maybe that's simplistic, but it just seems like there that issues and candidates aren't connected as much as they used to be. And, and part of that is a, is, is a function of the fact that Republicans have sort of bowed out of this whole, you know, candidate forums, editorial boards, places where local reporters ask them, ask them questions about issues that local people care about. When you have more of that, then it's harder to nationalize a campaign because no local reporter is going to be like, so Joe Biden, how do you think he's doing? I mean, no one's going to ask that they're going to ask, you know, about stuff that people in their community care about. Well, if you stop having those conversations, then all you have is this nationalized message. So, 
Yeah. Yep. It may be simplistic, but I tell you, it hits home, uh, Todd, your comparison there, because Aaron Rodgers has been driving me effing nuts for about <laughs> two or three years now. But every Sunday I throw on my Packers sweatshirt and socks and sit in front of the couch and watch him making me miserable for three hours. Uh, Caleb, uh, let me check on with you real quick here before we go. Um, under this whole umbrella, and again, teasing to weekend work, I know you're working on a story that kind of asked this big question here is, is Iowa a red state now? Kind of similar to Tom, I don't want you to steal yourself of any clicks and give away the farm, but any early nuggets from that and what you're talking about and how people feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's an argument um, and there's, there's disagreement, but I mean, I think, uh, like, obviously – if you quantify red state as all the state officers are all but one state officer is a Republican, all the congressional people are Republican, obviously looks very red, looks like a red state. But I think that, um, I mean, to, to take the opposing side that um, Iowa still could be considered a purple state. I mean, I think you can make that argument. If you look at like states that are, you know, more traditionally considered red states like Kentucky, Oklahoma, those like congressional candidates are winning by 60, 70% in their races. Whereas in the third district, you know, Saginaw won by less than a, a percentage point. So it's, it's, you know, that race could have very easily gone the other way. It's not that there aren't Democrats in that district. It's, it's, you know, the national environment campaign, those kind of things. And the same can be said for, you know, the first and second district too, um, to a lesser degree. But I mean, those margins aren't, insurmountable that's not something that you know in four years a democrat can't win that's that district um it could be that in four years republicans keep gaining the, keep up in those margins and you know we we see uh you know it just continue to trend republican and then maybe you know eight years four eight years from now it's it's more it looks more like one of those you know more reliably red states but um i i think it's fair to say that it's not quite it's too early to put it in the camp with 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 like the Kentuckys of the world. I mean, I think that there are and the other the other thing is voter registration, right? I mean, Republicans are again gaining ground in that area, but it's roughly a third Democrat, a third Republican, a third independent, with some advantage on the Republican side. Um, but you know, so and independent and the independents seem to sway Republican, but you know, who knows how uh permanent that is. Um so yeah, I mean that's the that's that's the answer that um I think is the most makes the most sense um it's red right now it could get redder um but that's not uh that's not a sure thing i think yeah um so that'll be interesting to read that story and and watch for toms as well and and everybody's here as we continue to unpack all these results and and uh what it means for the state moving forward sarah's gonna have a recount to to cover uh the, the work never stops and then before long folks We'll be talking about the next legislative session. And on Tuesday, we might be talking about 2024. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Special announcement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a kick out of uh, a national reporter who I actually know and like. He's a good guy. Um, he he tweeted out this week um, with the whole Trump-DeSantis uh, feud kind of starting, and, and he tweeted, um, oh, 2024 has officially begun. And I, I tweeted back at that saying, yeah, uh, here in Iowa, uh, 2024 is already a year old. <laughs> so, yeah, 
it, it never stops. No rest for the weary, but that's all right. It's 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 good to be needed in our line of work, so we won't complain too loudly. All right, that's it for now. I'm sure we'll think of more stuff to talk about. Like I said, it was a, another a big election cycle, and we'll tackle more in future episodes of On Iowa Politics. That's it for this one. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends and subscribe to us on any number of streaming audio services, including iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon. If you have any topics to suggest or you just want to reach out, send us an email at podcasts at thegazette.com. And now that you've listened to the On Iowa Politics podcast, make sure you're also subscribed to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where every morning in your inbox you'll receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team. You can subscribe to that newsletter at our website, thegazette.com. And lastly, don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites the Quad City Times, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Don Farrell, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Johnny on Point will play us out this week. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on the podcast, please send us a sound file. For Tom, Caleb, Sarah, Jared, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thanks for listening. Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.